Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. It's a bit, it's a bit thingy, isn't it? Right, OK, let's, let's do this. Let's go, let's go. Woo-hoo. and welcome to RetroTube Archive Television Podcast. It's been a fair old while since we last recorded, so for those new to the show, or indeed those of you who don't remember that far back, allow me to recap. RetroTube is the podcast where two best friends get together now and then for a good old matter about some of the most fantastic and frightful television shows of the 60s, 70s and 80s. For those of you listening in black and white, Adam's the ginger one. A brief scan of our previous episodes led us to the conclusion that this time it's my turn again, and in a change of pace from my usual offerings of zany, brightly coloured spy shows and Batman, I thought I'd ease us back into the podcasting game by choosing something a little more sedate and ever so slightly more organised. So naturally, I decided to choose the legendary Battle of the Sexes game show. Give us a clue. Give us a clue. Sorry, I was doing music. was created by Vince Powell and Juliet Grimm and ran for 322 episodes on ITV from 1979 to 1992 and is essentially a boys v girls game of charades. It was hosted by Michael Aspel until 1984 and then Michael Parkinson until 1992. The team captains were Lionel Blair for the entire duration of the show, Una Stubbs from 1979 to 1986 and then Lisa Goddard until 1992. It gave the public a unique opportunity to see that celebrities are as rubbish at after-dinner games as the rest of us, irrespective of gender. I used to watch Give Us A Clue every day as a kid and was a huge fan. But Adam, was it part of the Leslie family viewing? What were your expectations of the show and did you like the episodes we saw today? I was aware of it as one of those things that was always on television, Mm. even though it was a thing we never watched because we were really snooty and watched BBC and this was an ITV programme. Obviously, it was ITV. The the, the servants Mm. watched that, I I imagine. They did, During their lunch breaks or something. But but they weren't allowed to watch the adverts in case they got ideas. No! Heaven forfend. We had all the intellectual programmes like Blankety Blank and Generation Game. I mean, honestly. Absolutely, yes. I know, I understand. None of your rubbish. Oh, also, just just, uh, on this note that this took two people to devise, how many people does it take to say, let's put charades on TV? I mean, I just did it just then. It didn't take two of me. (laughs) Imagine, two Leslies. Wow, what a treat. I mean, and this this is with with no disrespect at all, because as as previously mentioned, huge fan. Who thought that would be a thing? <laughs> but apparently, they were right. It was a thing. I know. It and it went for like thirteen years. It it spanned three decades. To answer your last question, um, yeah, it was all right. It didn't offend me. It was quite entertaining. I'm not entirely convinced, although I think I'm wrong in this, considering that it was on for 14 years. I'm not entirely convinced that charades is a spectator sport if you're not actually taking part. But apparently it is. Apparently so, because 
each of the teams always seemed to be so thoroughly invested in what the other team was doing, even though they could only see the back of the person charading. And I think it's something to do with the layout of the format as well, because obviously most game shows and most quiz shows are set up so the people involved can face outwards towards the audience, but the but the actual, by definition, they have to face each other, so you can you can only ever see it side on or over somebody's shoulder it's never happening towards you it's happening towards the other contestants it's always going to have a slightly insular exclusionary feel don't overthink it or anything uh clearly (laughs) so it it was a bit like you're watching it and sort of trying to lean over their shoulders to see what's going on and you like they're and it happens so fast that it can be quite difficult to keep up with like they they're throwing yes. out a lot of things and, and it lasts twenty seconds and it's and it's finished and they've got it. A play, a play. And, and a book, book. And, and a film, film. and one, one word. word. The whole, the whole thing. thing. Sweeping, a, a digger, a worker, digging, hard, hard work, work. Toy. Tired. peasant, peasant, um, a... the worker. No. Three, Three syllables. syllables. First, First syllable. syllable. Cold, cold, hot. Oh. Cinderella. Fire. Cinderella. They just get this completely bonkers clue from nowhere and just get it. A lot of the time, I was like trying to make notes and I didn't get time. <laughs> it's like watching an auction. It's like people saying words really quickly. You can't quite follow it. Then it's finished. It's like, oh, what happened? Yes. Particularly in the first episode we watched because everyone was really drunk. Everybody was so drunk. And my favourite thing about the first episode was that there was a burgeoning, very grumpy bromance that I had never I had never considered until that moment, but I realised that it was it was clearly the thing that I'd been missing from my entire <laughs> life. There was a potential for fireworks and there was certainly tension. It was legendary. Something I've mentioned before, I think during the um adventure game episode, that there's this sense of the BBC as a place in other programs you would often see the exterior of the BBC building so they made no secret of the fact that it was all it was all TV and it was all happening inside these studios inside this very distinctive building and there were lots of programs like Monty Python and a bit later um, Fry and Laurie and all sorts of people you'd see them arriving at the, the studio or Blue Peter as well so there's this sense of it taking place inside a specific location that you were aware of and you knew what it looked like it certainly gave me the impression that it was a series of interconnected rooms they didn't i had no concept of the idea of striking sets between shows you just assumed that these sets were always up and if a show got cancelled they just turned out the lights and locked the door so you could come across a locked door and open it and oh it's the old nationwide set covered in dust maybe it's just me but there was this idea that the bbc (laughs) That the BBC schedules was working towards something. They'd give you a menu of shows for the evening and it was all structured around leading up to the nine o'clock news. But it all felt like it was contributing towards something. I don't know if this is just in my own imagination. It certainly wouldn't have been deliberate, but they did like to cu- cultivate this idea of... It's almost like your home or like it, it's a sort of community and you you knew all these people and they all knew each other and they all lived inside the same building. Whereas ITV shows all felt more free-floating and more ephemeral. Mm. So it's just like, give us the clues on, then they do the thing, and then it goes away, and you don't know 
what building it's taking place in. You have no idea of its relationship with the other shows, which you could argue is a much less self-indulgent thing. One might say that the BBC's attitude to entertaining the nation was extremely self-indulgent, whereas just ITV, here's a programme, it's free-floating, there's no moorings, you don't know anything about it, it entirely stands alone, and it's gone. Yes. I don't think I've ever thought about TV scheduling quite so in-depth. So we watched three episodes, didn't we? We most certainly did. We started with series two, episode one. When was this from? It was uh, aired on the 24th of December, 1979. And like many things you can find of old TV these days, this isn't an off-air thing. This this has the uh, ident card with the clock and a bit of studio chatter in the background. Yes. Which to me always feels like a bit of time travel. It's the bit of the show you, you were never supposed to see. Yeah, I always like that bit. It makes you feel like you're sort of part of it a little bit more. Like, you know, you've got a bit of a sneaky, a little sneaky look into TV world. Because you can see the ident card and the countdown. I don't know why. Give us a clue, VTR 21891, part one, take one. And also it slightly reframes the show, because if you start immediately with the theme music... It has a different, a subtly different momentum mm. than if you get the impression that everyone is sitting there quietly waiting for the theme music. It just slightly subtly reframes it. That is a very good point. It has a nice sense of anticipation, like looking at it from a slightly different angle. This first episode, as mentioned, was aired on Christmas Eve, so it is a Christmas special. There were two teams, obviously, as every week. The girls v boys, girls team was made up of a rather eclectic mix, I feel. There was Clodagh Rogers, which is always a surprise, uh, Paula Wilcox, and the lovely Nairi Dawn Porter. Those are some very 1970s names, aren't they? Aren't they just? I think Nairi Dawn Porter I only know from being mentioned on Monty Python. And possibly Clodagh Rogers as well was mentioned on Monty Python. Possibly. I, I know Nairi... I don't know Nairi Dawn Porter, but I'm sure she's lovely. Uh, but I know her from The Protectors ah, okay. uh, with uh, Robert Vaughan and uh, ah, your man there. Your man there whose name I always forget. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a, a live action human person, Jerry Anderson show. They were the girls and on the boys team. Oof. Whoever did the, the booking for this episode was a sucker for punishment. He's a genius, an absolute flipping genius. Spike Milligan, Spike Actual Milligan, Russ Abbott... And Kenneth Williams on a team with Lionel Blair. <laughs> I just want everybody to think about that for a moment, and I don't care what you're imagining. Oh. It's worse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, out of the four, I know which one I'd rather go for a pint with. Well, yes. I flipping love Russ Abbott. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to anybody, but uh ugh, since I was a very little girl, huge fan of Russ Abbott. I remember um when I was, I think I was about eight, and uh, the Russ Abbott show was mandatory viewing. It certainly was for Dad and I. Uh, Joe Mum and Shell, not quite so keen. Dad and I, always in bits. Um, <laughs> I remember, <clears throat> I remember there was this one particular sketch that he did with Sherry Houston where he got they they were a honeymooning couple on a cruise. They, they were there on the deck, and Sherry Houston was like, "Oh, have you seen this beautiful full moon?" Ross Abbott starts like screaming and making various sort of poses. And uh, she's, she said, what, what's the matter, darling? And he says, oh, it's my biggest secret. I didn't want to tell you before we got married. By day, I'm an ordinary estate agent. But every time there's a full moon, I turn into a werewolf. 
And she went, oh my God. And he said, what's the matter? And she said, I'm married an estate agent. <laughs> and I, I think I laughed for quite a few years every time I thought of it. <laughs> and then I worked for an estate agent oh. and I laughed hard. <laughs> and then when I was 12, my dad took me to see Russ Abbott in actual live at Southport Theatre. Wow. Um, we, had re- we had really good seats. And I nearly died. I nearly died laughing. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was the funniest thing. Dad and I were just in, we would, we were both guffawing. I get my laugh from my dad. Again, Sherry Houston was there. Bella Remberg was there. Fantastic. Uh, I have a feeling Les Dennis even may have been. But like, you know, we did he did all of the all of the Basil Dunbond and all of the those fellas. Leave it to me, sir. After I finish with them, whoever's the double agent will wish they work for the other side. Oh, excellent. <laughs> and then he did this uh, he did this sketch in a diner or a cafe. Bella Remberg had ordered an ice cream sundae at the beginning of the sketch, and then like about halfway through the sketch, he went up to her with an empty tray. And she said, What's this? And he said, It's your ice cream sundae. And she said, But there's nothing there. And he went, That's because it's a and then he just seemed to completely, he completely broke character and like his shoulders went down and he just let out this huge sigh and he went, it is Sunday. <laughs> and normally every time we've done this gig, it's been a Saturday or a Wednesday <laughs> or a Friday. It is actually Sunday. This doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and that was even funnier than the actual joke. I mean, the actual joke's pretty lamentable. <laughs> that's, that's definitely an improvement. <laughs> Ah, oh, it was it was brilliant. So yes, huge fan of Russ Abbott, and we all know how I feel about Spike Milligan, and um, also Kenneth Williams. I mean, I mean, what more does anybody want? My experience with um, Russ Abbott was when I worked in a theatre many years ago. Uh, he was there for a week doing a show. I was carrying a big pile of boxes down the corridor, and he held the door open for me. What a sir! He didn't have to. For most people, that would be a very basic act, but celebrities, they're a different breed. They are a little. He was around for a week and he was absolutely lovely. I should get a little plug in here. I've had quite a a Spike Milligan time of it recently because um, probably by the time this was released or shortly afterwards, I'm also on Goonpod talking about Spike Milligan's Q series at quite some length. With our good friend Tyler. With with Tyler, yes. Hello, Tyler. Hi, Tyler. So we will... uh, So... If you fancy more Spike Milligan chat after this, then you know what around to do. about this time I will be on Goonpod. So the theme tune for this series is Chicken Man by Alan Hawkshaw, TV theme tune composer and library music composer extraordinaire. That's him. Yes, so this is the Grange Hill theme, bizarrely. Mm. And that's not a thing you can imagine these days, two, two TV shows on competing channels having the same theme tune, presumably accidentally. I have a feeling that Give Us a Clue's budget was a little smaller. I think most TV shows these days have bespoke theme tunes. They don't just whip out a library CD. Uh, but this isn't the same arrangement as the Grange Hill version, whereas that's all full of, like, squelchy, crunchy, wah-wah guitars and all sorts. This one's more like as if Grange Hill was written by P.G. Woodhouse or Richmond Compton. It's very, very twee. It is, isn't it? It's a bit more 1920s feeling. Yes, a little bit more civilised. It doesn't feel 
extremely out of place other than the fact that it's the grain chill themed unit it does also suit gives a clue quite quite well i think and also it the the tune kind of you know lends itself to the title in a sort of a you know you can sing it mm. give us a clue give us a clue but you can't do that with grain chill yeah not enough syllables and the famous grain chill wow wow fits with give us a clue yeah, exactly. So it could be argued it's more suitable. I mean, the Grange Hill music's quite... It's so associated with Grange Hill now that you just it's the Grange Hill music. But it's quite an odd piece of music, isn't it? It doesn't necessarily say urban secondary school. <laughs> it doesn't. It does not. I don't, I don't know what piece of music would scream that. So as you said, this is the Christmas 1979 edition uh, and nothing is more Christmassy than Christmas decorations and a bright studio lights because they do some wonderful flaring. They do some wonderful flaring. And obviously, I mean, I don't know a lot about Christmas. I mean, I know that is a thing. I just don't have any personal experience of it. But I, I imagine that charades is, is, is a pretty a pretty standard traditional sort of thing that people do when they're bored at Christmas and they're stuck with their family. Yeah, you don't even need to be bored. It's great fun. I do like a game of charades, I'm not going to lie to you. And it's a good thing to do when you're drunk. For example, too drunk to adequately read an autocue. Yes. Without going, uh, uh, all the time. <laughs> Which Michael P- Michael Parkinson, no, we're on the wrong mic. No. Michael Aspel. Yes. He stumbles over his intro. They didn't do retakes, or maybe they did do retakes. Maybe this is the good one. <laughs> this is the best one. Do you know, after this one, they went, honestly. Let's just get on with it. We're not going to get any better than this. Mm. Let's just, it's going to be Christmas 1980 by the time we get him to actually say a thing. Right, the rules, by the way, uh, as usual, I've got a pile of cards, each bearing the name of a film, a stage play, uh, a television programme or a book, and uh, each member of each team has it in turn to mime what it is to their team. If they get it within a certain time, they get two points. If they get it within less time, they get three points. If they don't get it at all, I offer it to the opposing teams. Girls first. Una, are you ready? Yeah, so I thought this was just sort of like an old TV artefact that the host could say, uh, lot but actually he's quite smooth in the other episodes i think he'd just been partaking a little bit and indeed who hadn't in this particular episode <laughs> as mark kermode always says he was in a state of advanced refreshment that's exactly what was happening i don't want this to sound cruel even though it will but i don't mean it necessarily in a bad way mm. i think michael aspel is the most generic of all tv presenters is he like the dan briggs <laughs> the dan briggs of yes is that Michael Dan Briggs, for anyone who, who can't remember, that's the uh, fella from uh, Mission Impossible. It took me a few moments to remember. <laughs> I spent the entire episode... He still can't remember Impossible what he looks like. ...going, is that, is that the same guy that was in the other scene? He just He's so generic. Is that Dan Briggs? I mean, there's nothing wrong with Mike, but I feel like he's the base colour for TV presenters and all the other tv presenters are michael aspel plus mm. whatever color they bring to it so terry terry wogan is michael aspel plus all the terry woganisms and or michael parkinson is michael aspel plus all the michael parkinsonisms but michael aspel is so slick professional tv presenter that it's hard to think there's an actual real human being called michael yeah. aspel he's he's just mr tv he is also, what actually happened to Michael Aspel? Because, you know, he was on everything. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't on anything. I mean, he's ancient. He's, he's, he's no. retired. No, surely not. Surely not. He, he I know. Is. This is the thing. Also, no. the, thing, the thing about Michael Aspel is... Ageless. You imagine he he's always just 
because you couldn't say from this what age he is, because he's he looks quite young, but he has grey hair, mm. so he could be anywhere from about forty to about fifty-ish, maybe, or maybe thirty-five to about fifty-ish. It's really hard to tell. Yes, he's he's like the Gandalf of of television <laughs> presenting. Aspel he doesn't grey. He doesn't let anybody pass. Then he comes back as Aspel the White. <laughs> It's like grey, but a bit lighter. <laughs> but he's he's not slick in a really cheesy kind of Huey Green way, or you know, he's not spangly or slimy or oily. He's just very straight. He's just Michael Aspel. Somebody was saying about how, and this was possibly invented by Monty Python, but it's still a thing that children's TV is obsessed by. This idea of quiz show hosts are that kind of Michael Palin in a spangly lame jacket <laughs> with, a, with a fixed grin, a mid-Atlantic accent, a quiff and a pencil moustache going, hey, that was really sincere, ladies and gentlemen. But actually, TV presenters were never really like that. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> yeah, so saying that Michael Aspect... As- Aspect. I can't. I keep wanting to call him Michael Aspect. <laughs> Saying that Michael Aspel is very slick and professional. That doesn't extend to this show. This particular episode of this show. I mean, I, you say that particular episode, but I did go through quite a few of the episodes uh, to choose specifically three. That would be uh, that would be good. It's pretty. It's pretty much the same. <laughs> I think he was drunk for the entire run. He might well have been. Uh, <laughs> he started drinking when he discovered that he has to be on the same show as Kenneth Williams and Spike Milligan. I mean, it's the only way to get through it. In this episode, Michael's wearing a thick velvet jacket, the exact shade of beige as the backdrop, which seems for some reason to be made of hessian. Yes! Which is an unusual choice, because he does more or less look like a floating head. <laughs> Why beige? Why was so much TV in the 70s beige? You wait all that time through the late 50s and 60s to get colour TV. Then you get colour TV in the 70s and it's beige. Oh, the 70s. Mm. You are unknowable. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange decade. Um, speaking of velvet jackets, Lionel Blair. But Lionel Blair doesn't have his hair cut like yours. He does if he comes here. <laughs> oh, Lionel Blair is looking very dapper as a sort of Matt Silver Pertwee. He's like a cyber Pertwee. Yes, he is. That is a very good analogy. He's wearing a ve- silver velvet jacket. And I think, was he wearing silver trousers? Was it a suit? It wasn't a suit. It was a look. <laughs> it was definitely a look. It was a mood. He's a funny little pixie, isn't he? He is a funny little pixie. I think that's that's one of the kindest ways <laughs> it's one like... would refer to him. It's like as if somebody had made a pixie out of leather. <laughs> of course, Lionel Blair, as we know, uh, famously was in our, <laughs> our pet film of choice. <laughs> that, that very scene. Hard Day's Night. It was a beautiful thing to witness. When you think about it, this is very much... This show is very much Beatles versus Cliff Richard. Beatles versus what? Because mm, Eunice Stubbs is one of the, the leads in Summer Holiday. Yes. I rest my case, Your Honour. You make a valid point. <laughs> I'm not sure I do. So it's not about it's not about 
boys versus girls. Somebody who's in a Beatles ver- film versus somebody who's in a Cliff Richard film. That's the subtext I'm sticking with. So normally in, in the regular episodes, they have two minutes. But because this is a special Christmas episode, for some reason, they only have a minute and a half. And I think my favourite thing about this episode is the fact that they can't get the clock to count down from a minute and a half to zero. So they have to get the clock to count down from two minutes and stop it at 30 seconds. Yes. Which is hilariously amateurish and just has just made my day watching it. <laughs> it's it's so silly. The round ends at 30 <laughs> seconds. Yes, you've got until it says 30. It would be until it said zero, but we can't fix the thing. <laughs> Spike Milligan is particularly good value, I think. I think he is. Like, straight out of the a gate. A book and a film and a haircut. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. Book. Book. Film. And a film and a haircut. The person. No, real name. Real name. Real name. Real name of person. Three, Three words. words. The first one. Those no, goes. Second. Winston Churchill. <laughs> Second Who? word. The. The. Second word. The. The. Third word. Third word. <laughs> sailor. The dance. The sailor. sailor. Sailors. Anger. Nasty. Anger. The angry sailor. Nasty sailor. Um, nasty sailor. Jolly sailor. The jolly sailor. No, can't be. Fierce nasty. Sailor. Angry sailor. Ooh. Strike. Ooh. Hit. Ooh. Hit. Ooh. Ah. First syllable. Sailor yes. with a tattoo on his forearm. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like. Drunken Drunk. sailor. Drunken. Doesn't. Jolly. The jig. Sailor. The jolly uh. sailor. The horn blower. <laughs> the bad mimist. <laughs> I think it's one of those shows. And don't take this the wrong way. Uh, take it exactly the correct way. Um, it's a little bit like pop quiz in so much as these could, most of them could just be anyone, really, because they're so invested in playing this game and they're all talking at the same time that you don't really get much time with them individually. You don't yes, get much true. of their personality, sort of like, oh, Kenneth Williams was sort of in that, kind of in the background a bit saying some things at the same time as other people. Which, again, seems a little bit of a waste. Of like, you've got Spike Milligan and Kenneth Williams on the same panel on the same game show, and they don't really have much to do other than just play charades, which I know is kind of the point of the show, but it's Spike Milligan and Kenneth Williams. I mean, I can't argue with you because, you know, <laughs> it, it, is very, it is very much... I don't, I don't know... I don't know how, how to really explain the premise of the show to you, but it is celebrities playing charades. It was very so, much celebrities yes, playing there charades. They, there they are, <laughs> playing charades. <laughs> there, was a, there was a lot of charades happening and guessing badly. Uh, the sailor with a tattoo on his forearm uh, when uh, Lionel was, uh, you know, indicating syllables. Uh, oh, yes. I was... <laughs> uh, Spike does... There's a couple who stand out from the crowd but i think compared because there's a, a channel on youtube currently who's who's posting a lot of old episodes of old tv shows mm. so i've watched a couple of blankety blanks recently and that's another more or less contemporary show with six celebrity guests but they're not competing for space at the same time that blankety blank at least it has its faults but everyone's personality comes out really well so you really get a sense even though they're actually not on screen each for long because there's six of them plus the host plus the contestants but that gives them the space to pop whereas this obviously it's a completely different format but you don't don't so much get their personalities coming across (laughs) well thank you very much for tuning (laughs) (laughs) rendered you speechless i mean it's not a major criticism but that's what we're here for talking about the show (laughs) 
the only person who actually seems to be taking the the whole thing seriously is in fact Ross Abbott. He's guessing very sincerely and earnestly. And then Spike Milligan just comes in with, hmm, the bad my missed. <laughs> uh, and nobody nobody gets it. But the the girls do. The, 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 there seems to be a bit of a problem with the uh, with, with the division of uh, of clues or uh, things that they need to mine mm. in this episode, and it's very it is very very obvious. And I'm sorry, everybody can probably hear the uh, the police sirens. Um, what have you done this time? I have moved. I have moved back to Liverpool. All <laughs> oh, right, okay. Say no more. <laughs> It happens. <laughs> anyway, division of division anyway, of clues. Can you remember any of we? the clues? I didn't yes. write any down for this particular. I wrote all of them down. Okay. For the whole thing, just read out the first three rounds. So the girls got for the first round. Uh, the girls got Cinderella. The boys got Sinbad the Sailor, which doesn't sound too bad, but um, there's there's certainly differences in technique of miming and. Um, I don't even know what Lionel Blair was doing. Then round two, Paula Wilcox got Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and Kenneth Williams got the Snow Goose, and he didn't even know what that was. I don't know what that is. It's like, I is it a, a bell? I think it's an album by Camel. I don't know. I didn't even know that Camels could sing. <laughs> then round three, Nairi Dawn Porter got Puss in Boots, which is quite a good one to mine, and Spike Milligan got Zorba the Greek. <laughs> At the time of it, I was just thinking that the girls' team were really efficient and on it. But actually, now you say it, they got much easier clues. They they did get much easier clues, and that is and, and Spike and Kenneth particularly were very very vocal about the uh, about the distribution of clues. Um, they were not happy. In fact, I, I, I think I think my fastball was very lucky to get out of that show alive. Yes, I did write down Spike and Kenneth are getting out of hand. Spike roars at one point, it's not fair! And he seems genuinely furious. Oh, he, yeah, I think they, I think they both were furious. Um, I mean, you say that only Russ Abbott was taking it seriously, but by that point they were taking it very seriously. <laughs> oh, in fact... This is, this actually happens during round five because we need to talk we need to talk about what happens before round five. Mm. But that is when Spike yells, "It's not fair!" My notes say, "Spike, it's not fair!" <laughs> Spike and Kenneth go feral. They hate it. They're fuming. They see what's going on. Spike quits, unsurprisingly. The, the Christmas spirit has escaped them. Queen of the what? Queen of the what? Sounds yeah. like yeah. sounds yeah. like. Boom! Queen of the cows! Cow! Boom! 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 Queen of the blues! Oh! I've never heard of it! Blue Owls and the Blue Hunt! Blue! Queen of the blues! There you are, you get your two points for that. Queen of the blues, which. We all get four. It's so obscure, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I agree. you've given us are ridiculous. We've never heard of half of them, have we? Who's ever heard of the Queen of the Blues? It's, um, a carol. Uh, How many words, Beryl? Five. five. Uh, God. God. God rest you, Mary Chandler. Yes. Oh! <laughs> it's not fair! Oh, it's not fair! Oh, it's not fair! Oh, it's not fair! Oh, it's not fair. Oh, it's not fair. Oh, it's not fair. Oh, 
Next time, next time we'll make it. I mean, the whole show is absolutely chaotic. It just descends further and further into chaos. Carnage by the end of it, let's be fair. <laughs> yes, Mike, Michael Aspel's there to keep control and to keep order, <laughs> but he can't. He he gets the running order wrong, he gets the score. He's operating the scores scoreboards himself. There's no... You know, there's no stagehand to operate the scoreboard. He's got switches that move the numbers, the points through sequentially. So if he gives somebody else, which he does, too many points accidentally, then he has to compensate by giving the other team more points to make up for the points he's given them accidentally. But then he accidentally gives them too many. Even more. He gives them even more. It's chaotic and very odd to watch, but very entertaining, but also slightly (laughs) nerve-wracking. He's nerve-wracking because... The two people he's made really mad are Spike Milligan and Kenneth Williams. <laughs> <laughs> and you're watching it like, what the hell are they going to say? What the hell are they going to do? I bet Michael Aspel went home and had anxiety dreams for a week afterwards about upsetting <laughs> Spike and Kenneth. Only a week. I did write down who will snap first, Spike or Kenneth. Think, At first, they, they were. I think they snapped pretty much together, didn't they? <laughs> but you could tell there was tension leading up to. I mean, we're not saying. <laughs> I don't give the impression there was like a major fight or anything, but they said there was only a point at which they they were starting to get uh, visibly and audibly displeased. Yes, uh, what, what one of my notes is, I think Spike went to his grave furious about this. <laughs> He's added it to the long list of grudges. <laughs> oh, and on uh, a late a later round. Uh, Lionel Lionel Blair's clue was the holly in the ivy. And I wrote, thank heavens for this particular guest who we haven't met yet. He doesn't know the fires of hell he held back with that guest. (laughs) Well, yeah, we get extra guests, don't we? We get extra guests. Now, this is... this, this. this did my head in because I watched quite a few episodes because I wanted to I wanted to get guests that both of us love and I wanted, you know, to get ones that you specifically loved, which is which is why we got the second episode that we watched. But for all of the wonderful, wonderful guests that they had they had on and people that we especially love, like Anna Quayle and Dispanetti and, you know, people like this, Tim Brooke Taylor, they would either have a really boring, it would be a really boring show. It would, you know, just not like nothing silly would happen. And then there were quite a few episodes where there were people that we loved and then there would be people like Jim Davidson and Sharon Davis and I'm not letting us watch that because we don't need that in our lives. And our listeners don't need to hear about them because, you know... Yeah, I think there's definitely a difference between problematic people from back then who are fun to talk about because they were problematic back then and people who are still currently problematic and harmful. Yes. Which makes it less fun to talk about. So we we were gazumped from doing an Anna Quayle and Victor Spinetti episode because of the guest they had, which is which is a shame. Yes, it is a shame. And so the episode that I ended up choosing, two of them had the same guest, and then I and then and then there was this episode, and I was like, well, this is fine. This is this is this is fine. This this person is not here. Not necessarily a problematic person, but not a problem. No, I mean. Uh, just a, just a person. This person was not in this episode until halfway through when they brought in two new guests. And 
Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Claude evade the set before the commercial break. I'm here. Good. And we're looking for a children's home. To give the toys to. Oh, oh, not? And a lady Christmas. Ooh. Mother. Well, we shall find out who they are sure, after sure, this. They do indeed. And after the break, we discover that they are, in fact, the very lovely Dickie Davis and Beryl Reed. <laughs> and the quite edgy Beryl Reed. We have to endure Beryl Reed for the rest of this episode, folks. She's in everything. All three episodes, not intentionally. We. Don't get a break from Beryl Reed. When Mr and Mrs Claus turned up, because they are in disguise, so you have to wait till after the commercial break to di- discover who Mr and Mrs Claus were, I knew that one of them would be Beryl Reed. Uh, I didn't know who Santa Claus would be uh, yet, and I didn't recognise them, and it was Dickie Davis, um, who I have no, no, no opinions about either way because I don't watch sport. The note I made was that it was like it wasn't quite happening for the viewer's benefit... Or the participants' benefit. It was just this chaos that suddenly descended. Mm. And it wasn't quite explained why this was happening, why why Mr and Mrs Claus had suddenly turned up. Let me tell you, folks, there was no need for the addition of Beryl Reed and Dickie Davis. It diluted it because then they joined the teams. It's not even like either of them were particularly good at miming or charading. Because they hadn't been in the first two-thirds of the episode, they didn't have any connection any chemistry with the rest of the team so they were just sort of out on the edge no trying their best to join there. in but the the pre-existing teams or you know had a bit of momentum behind them and a bit, bit of energy and quite a lot in the case of spike and kenneth a bit of rage so poor old dickie had to sit on the end looking a bit flushed so beryl reed for people who aren't really aware of beryl reed she was a dramatic actress, and she was a very good dramatic actress. She, she turned up in a few things, like The Killing of Sister Georgie. She was in the original Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. She had a very good scene opposite uh, Alec Guinness. And what did Toby Esther Hayes say? Oh, I got the dead fish voice. Tell Percy Alleline Percy's in charge. And then? Not every ex-warrior's a Carla agent, says Percy. I said, listen, Percy... Polyakov's running an English mole. So I get the rude letter. Stop it or else. So I wrote at the bottom, yes, repeat, no. So, here we are. Flush and me. Please kiss me, George. But also she seemed to be a regular guest on light entertainment shows like this and she was on Blankety Blank quite a lot. In fact, one of the episodes of Blankety Blank I watched, the first one I watched, it's Beryl Reed again. I can't escape this woman. I know, you texted me and you're like, you'll never guess. <laughs> it's Beryl Reed. Beryl Reed is stalking you from the grave. She's a strange character because she was always on light entertainment shows, but she she never really seemed that comfortable on light entertainment shows. She was neither pleasant nor good. No, she's, she always came across as a very old-fashioned and somewhat intimidating little old lady. She, she was only in her early 60s in this. I only know Beryl Reed from 
an episode of the monkey, uh, not the monkeys, the goodies, called Gender Education, where she plays a, a, a parody of Mary Whitehouse. And let me tell you, it is a role she was born to. Well, I was going to make this exact point. She, she has a very, I had no idea you were going to say that, but I was about to say she has a very Mary Whitehouse energy to her. She's She's quite a severe, very judgmental little old lady. She's like a school, te- like a severe old-fashioned school teacher. There's some like she, she kind of plays it dotty and a bit forgetful, and like she doesn't really know what's going on, but she'll tick off Michael Aspel if he mentions that she doesn't know what's going on and things like that. So, so there's some yeah. chuckles to be had from her slightly dotty personality, but yeah, she's a bit of an uncomfortable presence. You couldn't have a you know a giggly sherry. Beryl Reed, she's not that kind of a little old lady. And I think people did find her quite difficult mm. to work with as well. She she was not like the most patient of people. There's a, there's a uh, because one of her most famous roles these days is turning up as a, a, a starship captain or a freighter spaceship captain uh, in Doctor Who in a Cyberman story called Earthshock. It's the kind of thing to laugh at it and go Beryl Reed playing a starship captain. But actually, she's really good at it because she's so intimidating. She, she's very, very bossy. Yeah, I can believe that. But there's some studio outtakes where she's, she's sitting around waiting for things to happen and she's starting to get really stroppy about the fact that she's being made to wait rather than just acting like a professional and waiting for people to be ready to do what she's doing she's she starts acting a bit she's starting to be a bit of a karen frankly like mm. she's she's acting like one of those people like she's been stood in a queue at a shop for too long hello Bill. oh darling i'm fed up well, i've been sitting here since half past ten past ten i got here this morning and i've rehearsed one line it's, like, it's not like movies where they pay for your time Oh, it does get me now. I'm tired up, fed up now. And it's very badly organised. I have to sit here long ago. Uh, in, in a later episode that we watched, she's very, very mean to one of the guests. Yeah, we'll get to that. I, I made a note of that. I wasn't I wasn't best pleased about her behaviour in that episode, but we'll, we'll get to that. No. At one point, Michael Aspel gives the boys' team the girls' points... By accident. Yes, and then he tries to give more points to the girls but ends up giving them loads more points. Spike and Kenneth basically are about to go nuclear at this juncture. People are going to die. At one point, <laughs> at one point uh, Spike says, we will win, with the German accent, then does a Nazi salute. And does a Nazi salute. Yeah. So, happy Christmas, everyone. That was an, a note I made. His, it was his, um, his thing... And I wrote, he is now the most competitive and most determined man alive to get people to guess this. They do. He mm. celebrates with a Nazi salute. Oh, Spike. I mean, that's the most Most of my thing, notes in this it? episode, <laughs> it, Spike, most of my notes in this episode basically say, oh, Spike. Oh, Spike. Oh, Spike. <laughs> Terry, Terry, Terry. Absolutely. Coda Rogers doing a man to great expectations. That was that was inspired. That was inspired. She did a great job. Mm. She mimed tall and then she mimed pregnant. <laughs> what a hero. Mm. Bloody love you, Coda Rogers. Is she um she's a Eurovision singer, isn't she? No, she's a singer. I, I, I knew that. I mean I think she's basically mostly famous for being called Cloda. Oh, probably, actually, yeah. You were the only Clodie in the world, and I was the only boy. And then the show, at the very end, you think it's finished, 
But it hasn't, because it degenerates into present opening. So we've got Mr and Mrs Claus here who've brought... They've, they've arrived on a sleigh and they've got loads of presents. I think it's for, like, a children's home or for sick children or something. But for some reason, everyone there, instead of the children, start opening the presents... This has all been organised. This isn't because they're rioting. No, there are no children. They, they have actually been asked to open these presents. They've been allocated a present each. And they open the presents and they end up with dolls and teddy bears and things. Spike turns the wrapping paper from his present into a little tabard. <laughs> well, you know, he's he's always here for the fashion. Mm. Um, Kenneth thinks that it's it's hilarious and he does a really cute little giggle. But then Spike throws the doll that was be that was wrapped up away and Kenneth rescues it. Um, so honestly, I feel like this is the moment that Spike Milligan and Kenneth Williams actually fell in love. <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna ship that for the rest of my life. Thank you. I just kind of thought it's not clear what's going on. Why are they opening the? Pre- I know, I know it's t- so they can see. So the viewers can see what's inside the presents. But also it's just generic things like teddy bears and dolls. They generally seem a bit bemused as to why they're opening presents and finding dolls inside. No one's quite clear what's going on. No, but I don't. I feel like at this point everybody has had way too much to drink to care. So, so it's a very strange episode, but quite sort of fun in a tense way. It's nice to see a bit of TV that isn't super slick. Even though it's it's a, it's a fairly slick show normally, I think. It's so not slick. It's so chaotic. The uncertainty of it is glorious. I think I don't think that's too big a word. Yeah, it's not necessarily a warm and welcoming chaos. No. It definitely you definitely feel like you're peering in through the window at some Lord of the Flies-esque event. <laughs> it's not like the best of Saturday night TV. No, 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 it would have degenerated into that had there been another round. Poor Michael Aspel's head would have been on a spike. <laughs> Not that one. Wait a minute, hang uh. on. I didn't I didn't intend to pull, but hang on, mm. I'll take it. <laughs> but it would have been. <laughs> I don't envy their agents the next morning. So then we move on a year. We're on to series three, episode 11. We have a new theme tune. Yes, we do. I chose this episode for a very obvious reason. And again, it's all about the boys team. I don't know if anybody who has ever listened to any episodes of Retro Tube has picked up on these subtle hints from Adam. He quite likes Doctor Who. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. He's a shade above ambivalent. <laughs> this episode boasts not one. Not one. But Two doctors. Mm-hmm. Doctors who? Doctor who's. Do- I like Doctors who as a plural. Okay, fine. I'll take that. John Pertwee, who, you know, everybody loves. And Pete Davison, who also everybody loves. Does everybody love these people? I don't know. I think he'd only just been announced as the Doctor at this point. I don't think, oh. as far as I know, he he had actually done any episodes there were no vegetation in lapels at this point if you squint this is very much a sci-fi episode all around um Mm. because we should say so the other person well i know i I can squeeze the third person onto the boys in the boys team let's into sci-fi i I can make him tangentially sci-fi so the the third one on the boys' team is Jeffrey Hayes from Rainbow, who has turned up in costume. Jeffrey, unlike everyone yes, he else, has. 
it was a very bold choice. <laughs> he must feel like the person who's turned up to a fancy dress party and it's not a fancy dress party. He's in his trademark dungarees. Maybe he was just on his lunch break. <laughs> he could have just been, yeah, he could have just been over at the, the studio recording Rainbow. So Jeffrey Hayes was the presenter of Rainbow, which was a children's TV show in which um, an adult man called Jeffrey shared a house with Teddy Bear with a personality disorder. Called Bungle. A gay hippo. A gay coded hippo, yes. Mm, called George. And a cushion. And this kind of round-headed thing with an extremely abrasive personality called Zippy. He had a zip for his mouth. He sometimes became so abrasive and bolshy that Jeffrey would be forced to zip his mouth up and he'd be going... And that really... Oh, I didn't like that. That scared me. Do you know, now as you've said that, I, I can imagine that that was... Zippy mm, was my favourite. It bothered me. And I, and I feel like that's, that, that says so much about me. <laughs> I like George best because he was very gentle. He was very gentle. And bungle this, this human-sized teddy bear. He would randomly get in sulks and bad moods and he'd become he'd become very passive aggressive sometimes and he'd be very very bossy he was a really unpleasant character bungle bear bungle come on wake up oh. i've got a letter for you a letter for me jeffrey oh, it's the one for me jeffrey no sorry zippy what, what, what about me jeffrey no just one letter this morning george and it's for bungle bear what, what does it say jeffrey well, let's have a look shall we Oh, Bungle, look, it's a, an invitation to a party. Sooty's party tomorrow. Oh. And is the invitation just for me? Yes, Bungle, it just says, Dear Bungle, please come to my party on Saturday. Love, Sooty. Oh. No, that's not fair. <gasps> no, it isn't. I, I like to go as well. Well, you can't because it just says Bungle, and that means me. Oh. <gasps> I must be very important. You, will you be going to the party, Bungle? Will I be going? What a silly question. Of course I'll be going. That reminds me, Geoffrey. I don't think I like sharing a bed anymore. I think I should have a bed of my own. A bed of your own? Yes, and a room of my own as well. But I'm going to make this science fiction tangentially because... Oh, yes. Uh, George and Zippy were voiced by Roy Skelton, an actor who is most famous for doing the Dalek voices. So uh, th that's the boys' team. So it's two Doctor Whos and Jeffrey from Rainbow, plus Lionel. They have, their hairstyles are in pairs. So Jeffrey... They are. Jeffrey and Peter Davison have an identical haircut, uh, kind of the, the floppy blonde hair, and Lionel has a huge curly bouffant, as does John Pertwee. Yes, it's spectacular. It practically deserves its own screen credit. On the girls' team, tell us who's on the girls' team. Well, there is lovely Sandra Dickinson. Mm -hmm. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Sci-fi again. Beryl Reed, obviously, because she lives here. Oh, oh, oh no, My of course it's nemesis. your arch nemesis. The filthy traitor. How bloody dare she. <laughs> you get off my screen now. The woman who betrayed Graham Garden. She betrayed the whole of humanity. She blooming well did. Leslie Judd. Leslie Judd off of the adventure game. Oh. How, I, I will never forgive. I will never forget. Leslie Judd. I have no ill will towards Leslie Judd. A gig's a gig, but I know what Heather's like. When I, I winced when she came up. I was like, oh no. This is how much I love you. 
I put myself through an episode of a thing with Leslie flipping Judd <laughs> so that you could get to see Doctor Who's Doctor's Who, Doctor's Do- Who. the Doctors. We have two sets of romantic relationships across the teams. We have husband and wife, Peter Davison and Sandra Dickinson. And we have Wurzel Gummidge and Aunt Sally, which is that most toxic and abusive of TV relationships. She's horrible. Will you marry me? Certainly not. What for, certainly not? Because you're ugly and stupid. Anyone can see that. <laughs> if you'd live with the Romneys as I've done, they'd have chuck you on a bonfire right quick. Oh, don't, don't mention that word, Missy. Call me stupid and ugly if you like, but never mention bonfires. Oh, no, Missy. Big bonfires. Don't, don't, don't mention that word. Flames. I, 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 I genuinely have no memory of Wurzel Gummidge apart from being so terrified. I know one time he took his head off. He took his head off repeatedly. I don't know, because I only needed to see that once. If ever we have to cover Wurzel Gummidge, I'll get a guest on. We don't have to cover Wurzel Gummidge, it's fine. I do like the fact that at one point, John Pertwee has to read the clue, and he says in his Wurzel Gummidge voice, I haven't got my reading head on. <laughs> I thought it was very charming. Yes, I made a note of that. Bless him. What a little love. We do love John Pertwee in this house. Also, I wrote down, Leslie is secretly scoring points for the boys' team. Once a traitor, always a traitor. I can never trust her again. Anybody who will betray Graham Garden. There's no coming back from that, Leslie. No coming back. So what what um, clues did we have? Or, they're not really clues, are they? They're, they're the, uh, the things they have to guess. The only one I've written down is poor old Sandra Dickinson gets... I think this is a song. Oh. She's a Latin from Manhattan. She has to try yes. and convey through the medium of charades. That did not go well. She's a Latin from Manhattan. How would that have been possible? My note on this. Sandra isn't very confident about this. And there's a reason for this. She snaps her fingers for two minutes. And then Beryl sounds all judgmental at her and goes, We're counting on you. <laughs> well, you wouldn't have to if you'd read your clue properly, Beryl. <laughs> because Beryl had uh, the fiend who walked the West. Mm. And she read it as the friend who walked the West. That's right. So that made things very difficult for everybody, especially Beryl. And then she she basically walked an entire trench through the studio floor and still couldn't get anybody to say the word walked. It was painful. It was painful. After after Beryl was judgmental at her, she basically just shuffled for the last 30 seconds. The highlight of the first half, I think, probably not Lionel Blair's mime... Exactly. He had varsity drag to mime. His mime of the word drag was hilarious because he he started off like miming the action of dragging something and the boys didn't get it, which is fine. So then he decided to, you know, pretend to be a drag queen and he was literally there on the girls' team <laughs> doing the can-can and still nobody had a clue why. No. And then all of a sudden... John Pertwee says tit with his <laughs> entire, no pun intended, chest. <laughs> Good old John. <laughs> I think I think at that moment the game should have just been over because mm. once once John Pertwee has Once Doctor Who says tit yelled, yelled out the word tit, that's it. That's it. He wins. They win. It was certainly a thing. And then and then because he knew that that wasn't right, then he said, ah, it must be the other one. Boob. <laughs> Tit. 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 
Bosom, bosom, bosom. Boom, boom. Boom, the other way around is boom. Time is up. Now, Lionel, of course, mustn't say what it is because the girls have to guess for a bonus point. You've got the clue, Sarbar Bar Chitter Snatch. <laughs> Does that help you in any way? Another one of the clues, another one of the things they had to guess was, I want a girl like the girl that just married dear old dad. No. <laughs> Hang on. Do you want me to... I want a girl just like the girl who married dear old dad. That's the one, yes. You're and welcome. something welcome. like that. I mean, I would have been yes. really bad so... at this show. <laughs> but how could, like... What, I mean, A, that, that's, hilar- that's a hilariously dodgy song title. I'm, I don't know the song at all. I'm guessing it's one of those 1920s novelty songs. Uh, well, um, I mean, I'm sure a few people did it, but it's famously recorded by Al Jolson. Oh, OK. It reminds me of songs like I'm Going to Bring a Watermelon to My Girl Tonight, the sort of things that the Bonzo Dog Band would cover. No, it's uh, I want a girl just like the girl who married dear old dad. She was a pearl and the only girl a daddy ever had. A good old-fashioned girl with heart so true. One who loved nobody else but you. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't go. My grandma's favourite film was The Jolson Story. Oh, really? Okay. My poor... <laughs> my, I said my poor grandma. She was a, she was, she was a vile woman. She was, <laughs> she, was, she was awful. She was a dreadful, dreadful human being. However... My mother was a very soft-hearted woman. When Grandma got a bit older and she she started with Alzheimer's disease, she moved into a home which was quite close to where we lived. Quite often, Grandma would come over for, for tea and every single time Grandma came over, Mum would make a big fire in, in the living room and she'd get the video of the Jolson story on. And one day Grandma said, Do you know what, Lily? Oh, yo... I've tried every channel on our telly, but I can never get this. How come you can always get it on yours? <laughs> and mum was like, um, well, you know, we just know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Good old grandma. Good, good old vile grandma. <laughs> Sandra Dickinson, I, I, I was always fascinated by her voice. She was on um, Blankety Blank a lot. She was one of the regular contestants. Or oh, she always seemed to be on Blankety Blank. And again, for anyone who's not familiar with her, she's an American actress, but she was in Britain a lot. Uh, she had a very distinctive, quite high voice, which I always found fascinating. And it wasn't like a thing. It wasn't like... It wasn't put on. It was her actual voice. I mean, fair play. But yeah. I'm told you first realised that you loved him when you were standing at a bus stop. Well, it was the first time I really looked him in the eye, I think. It was a sort of good of food for me, really. I don't know what happened to you. <laughs> but we, we'd worked together for several weeks, and uh, there was no sort of ill effect or anything, and it was only at this bus stop. Yeah. I think I looked at you for the first time, really. Sandra, she, she did tell me that she was rather disappointed when she found out how she was playing opposite me. Oh. Yeah, she rather thought it would hope, hoped it would be someone else. <laughs> <laughs> the running gag in this episode is Peter Davison pulling the arms off the chairs. Yes. And waving them with the camera. He has a thing with chairs. So back in 1987, I went to Panopticon, uh, which is a Doctor Who convention in London, 
uh, where Peter Davison and some of his companions were there doing a panel, and he managed to cut himself on the chair. So he obviously, he obviously likes fiddling How? with chairs that he's sitting on. Uh, and I remember distinctly that he cut his his hand on the metal chair that he was sitting on and, and dabbed it on the paper. And then one of the other people there, I think Sarah Sutton, said that they should auction the blood for charity. And then someone in the audience shouted out, a million dollars. I think they were American. Maybe it was a million pounds. And I remember that distinctly I was when I was 13. Then not long ago, I, I found a video from that very panel from Panopticon. And it, it happened exactly as I remembered it. Except now I could tell that Peter seemed quite cross, which I didn't pick up on at the time. Because I think when you're little, you kind of get the idea that celebrities are always quite happy and living in their perfect celebrity lives. And even if they slightly hurt themselves, they're still, you know, it's still all showbiz. But he he did actually seem a bit cross. I just cut my finger. Chairs are licensed to kill. Is there a plaster in the house? (laughs) Rather badly cut my finger. I want to feel just like the girl who married dear old dad. I actually don't. Um. (laughs) It's interesting the fact that they don't mention or even allude to the fact that Peter and Sandra are husband and wife. If you didn't know, you wouldn't guess. Well, I I mean, I didn't know and I didn't guess. They don't mention it in this about a couple who are together. However, the next episode that we look at, they make quite a running gag of, of a particular yes, relationship. This is, this is a, another celebrity couple we have in the next one. So we, we'll jump forward to series three. So it's the same series. This is series three, episode 19. So this is eight episodes later. We've got a different opening titles now, so it's the same music. Series three has a different theme tune to series two. It's a bit less interesting, I think, than the Grange Hill Chicken Man one. Yeah, it, it feels a little bit even more generic. It's quite ba-bum, generic, ba-bum, isn't it? Ba-bum. So I think... They hadn't quite, by by episode 11, they hadn't quite finished the opening titles because the episode 11, the Doctor Who one, it was just stills. But by episode 19, we have an animated one. We have stop, it's stop motion animated. We've got stop, stop motion Lionel and Yuna pulling, making poses, striking poses, and lots of that very 1980s airbrushed art with ladies' hands with long red 1980s fingernails on them. The, the obligatory long red 1980s fingernails. In this episode, Michael Aspel. We didn't mention Michael Aspel at all in the last episode. He's he's sober in the, in this in this series. He properly fades into the background. So in the previous episode, he's wearing a bright red jersey with a with some weird logo on. I'm just not sure if it's the Puma logo, this white logo. And in this episode, he's wearing a grey jersey with the same logo on it. Maybe he's got like a whole wardrobe. Yeah, maybe it's the Michael Aspel logo. Oh, my goodness. Maybe he's like a member of a secret right-wing think tank or something that we don't know about, and that's their, that's their clubhouse jersey. I feel like my class ball probably hasn't got the, hasn't got the energy. <laughs> probably not. He's not Norris McWhirter. But he, he was wearing two jerseys with the identical mysterious logo on them on shows eight episodes apart, so it, it will forever remain a mystery and a, and a really not interesting mystery either. Sorry. So tell us about the um, the teams in this one. Well, this is actually the entire reason that I wanted us to watch this. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, now it's revealed. <laughs> because I mean, your when, latest when, obsession. Yeah, when I when I when I chose these episodes back in you know 1993, I had just discovered for the Muppet Show. I had just I had just been introduced to to the wonderful world of of Dudley Moore. So you know, I was kind of trying to figure out a way of getting to see Shoe-horning. Dudley Moore again in an episode. No, I wasn't. I was just trying to 
get to see Dudley Moore in another episode so I could, you know, see him in another sensible jumper. And uh, I was going to suggest an audience with Dudley Moore, but unfortunately, for everybody concerned, despite the fact that Lulu and Dudley, in an audience with Dudley Moore, did a duet together, I mean, what more would I want in my life? Nothing. Not much. To ruin this whole wonderful moment, Rolf Harris just turned up and, and ruined everything. So, uh, I mean, we couldn't watch an audience with Dudley Moore because I don't want anybody to talk about that person. He's also problematic in a way that's not fun to talk about. Give us a clue it was. Um, and he was in two episodes. I chose this one because, obviously, he was with his girlfriend, Susan Anton, who is adorable! She's just... She's adorable! I love her! <laughs> I have to say, not everybody on the show loved Susan Anton as much as, as I do, or, or indeed as much as Dudley did. Ellery couldn't stand her. She was just vile the whole way through. Every time, I mean, the poor girl didn't even do anything. She's vile to both her teammates in this. She is because the other the other teammate is is the equally lovely lovely Debbie Linton, and she was just doing her best. She was minding her own business. Yeah, so I th- I think uh, these days Susan Anton and Debbie Linton aren't household names. So we better say who they are. So Susan Anton is an extremely tall American actress. Yes. Who was dating Wee Dudley at the time. Dudley's a very small fellow, so it was a big joke at the time in the media. And of course, oh, they, it was hilarious. Can't help having fun with that on the show as well. I don't understand. You know how I feel about a tall girl, short man combo. <laughs> you do. Big fan, big fan. Don't, don't see what the joke is. Like that bit in The Monkeys with Davy Jones and the very tall lady. Yes, one of my favourite scenes ever. Debbie was a um, glamour model from the early 80s. She's best remembered as uh, Mr Grace's secretary in um, To the Manor Born. No, what's it called? I'm sorry, I haven't got a clue. What's it called? Open served? All Hours. The one with the big shop. Are you being served? Are you being served? Yes, she has the most early 80s glamour model hair imaginable in this. She absolutely does. Yeah, and I think because she had quite a sad life and she didn't live that long and she had lots of problems, she only lived to be 36, it kind of puts the show in a different context and makes some of it a little bit uncomfortable, just in retrospect. I think at any time it's going to be tricky to be a glamour model, but I think particularly in the early 80s, you would be objectified a lot and lots of people aren't going to take you seriously. So I think that probably didn't help the problems that she had. So not wanted to bring her down on things, but yeah, we've, we've got somebody here who didn't live that long and didn't have a great life and but just seems really really nice in this she did seem really really nice and so it's so it really seems even nastier that Beryl Reed was such a you know cow yes <laughs> essentially it's specifically the round I can't remember what they're trying to guess but it's it's Debbie's turn to mime she she was given the song I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts yeah I mean this is uncomfortable it is not massively but just the fact that there's a few occasions particularly in this episode where the things they are given to mime sort of slightly smirkingly reflect how they're perceived so like she's a glamour model and she's got breasts so she has to mind <laughs> up on a lovely bunch of coconuts and it's hilarious. And yes, uh, Beryl decides that she's being silly. Yes. And it accuses her of being silly. So she comes across really badly in this episode, and does Beryl. Debbie Linden, Debbie. Oh. Kind of sashay your body in this direction. Oh, Put some clothes yeah. on Tell me when she's gone. 
Yeah. I'll open my eyes. Right. Two minutes from now. Song. Song. How many words? Uh, uh. Seven, I can tell you that. Seven. seven. Okay, seven words. First seven. word. Me. I. Me. Uh, uh, I'm. I'm. I've. 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 I've grown got, accustomed to. I've. Got you under my skin. A. A. I've. I've. I've got a crush on you. I've. I've fifth word. Okay. Uh, Oh, I don't know little ones together. Uh, shit, friend. Uh, Pal. Uh, no, it's, it's a... It's a, 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 it's a, a, a doll. Flowers. It's a seven flowers. What? Oh, you're getting silly. <laughs> 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 yes, you are a bit. <laughs> I'm just a girl who can't say no. I mean, she doesn't come across great in the other two. But she comes across the worst in this. Because not only does she very clearly not approve of poor old Debbie, for some reason, she clearly cannot stand the beautiful, talented, successful, gorgeous Susan Anton. I don't know what the problem is with her (laughs) and those two lovely ladies. Yeah, I think she just doesn't like gals. Often when you're watching these things, like on Blankety Blank and any of these old shows, there's always a bit that makes you go, ooh, in this one, Michael Aspel says to Debbie Linden, sashay your body in this direction. I mean, why would you say that to a human? It's like, they can't help themselves. It's different times. I mean, I'm not... I'm I'm not here to cancel my class ball. No, 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 not at all. But they can't... These, these male hosts, and Terry Wogan was terrible for it. Oh, I must mention this, actually, as well. I was watching last night, I think it's the very first episode of Paul Daniels' magic show. Mm. It's one of the very early ones, anyway. He's doing a a trick for the audience, and there's this audience member, and it's her 21st birthday. He decides she should give him a peck on the cheek. As she goes to give him a peck on the cheek, he swings his head around really quickly, so she actually kisses him on the lips. No, why why did you you tell me that? Why did you put that image in my head? What's wrong with you? Why would you do that to a person? Joy! Are you the one... It's having a birthday. Yes. Is it today? Yes. Oh, is it? Stood up. Stood up. How old are you? 21. 21. Oh, and never been kissed. So, just kiss there. <laughs> what a fast girl you are. I think at the time it was just ho, ho, ho. But it just it sits really badly these days. It it's not it doesn't come across well. Oh, no. The only well it comes across is well creepy. Mm-hmm. They can't help themselves. These these blokes. Everyone laughed it off, but she may well have felt a bit uncomfortable with it. Just ew. I'm glad we don't live in those times anymore. It would be very tedious. So who do we have on the boys team? Well, I've got that off my chest. We've got we've got very lovely Dudley Moore and. We also have Jimmy Jewel, the most spectacularly named human being ever. It's the most old variety show name you can imagine, isn't it? Jimmy Jewel. Jimmy Jewel. What a guy. What a hero. And also Simon Williams. Simon Williams, the incredibly tall Simon Williams. Yes. There was a choice made by the people who put this episode together. And I think <laughs> and I feel I feel like the choice that was made was to make Dudley more feel as short as possible. And he didn't need any help. He was five foot two and a half. Was he really? beautiful. Jimmy Jewell was indeed an old-timey variety performer. Well, do you know what? He gets all of the things right. He's just like, somebody told him to sit in the studio and he didn't really know what was going on and then this stuff starts happening around him and he's like, ah yes, that's it. 
I think he wins the game for them. He's their MVP. His real name was James Arthur Thomas Jewell Marsh. It was his name. And also Simon Williams, at this point, a very young actor, very tall and very posh and seems very nice. Very tall and very posh. Mm -hmm. And apparently he is very nice as well. That's his job. Mm -hmm. He was in an episode of Man in a Suitcase. He was was indeed. Not one of the ones that we watched for for, for Retro Tube, but he indeed was. He was in an episode called The Bridge, which also starred Rodney Bewes. Oh, Rodney Bewes, okay. Yes, the man who has adjusted his trousers behind me. (laughs) That will mean... That will mean nothing to a lot of people. I know, and I'm not even going to embellish on it. (laughs) I mean, maybe I should say that there's a a photograph. No, don't. Okay. Don't, no, don't tell them. Don't don't tell them there's photographic evidence of Rodney Pugh's adjusting his trousers behind me, but he did. No, it's a photograph of you meeting Tim Brooke Taylor and having a good cuddle for Tim Brooke. And this photo had been around for ages. And then one day somebody, and it might be me, somebody said... I think it was you, in fact. That old man behind you, is that Rodney Bewes? That, well, that is Rodney Bewes, adjusting his trousers. <laughs> I mean, not... He, he's ad- adjusting the waistband. He hasn't got his hand down the front. We should we should make that clear. <laughs> he's not adjusting anything but the... There was nothing untoward going on. He's not adjusting anything but the trousers. Your cuddle with Tim Brooke Taylor was photobombed by... Rodney Bewes and Mer- <laughs> By Rodney Bewes adjusting his trousers. <laughs> yes. So, yes, we have, again, for a few of the other rounds, so the things they have to guess are appropriate, shall we say, to the performer. So Dudley Moore has to mime Wee Willy Winky. We don't know Dudley Moore well enough at this point <laughs> to make any kind of... And the... And the- Susan Anton, meanwhile, has to mime Long Tall Sally because she's tall. Which Dudley Moore cannot deal with. Oh, is that the one where he goes tries a bit... to mime the word long. He goes feral. He leaps out of his chair and, and he throws himself to the floor. And Jimmy Jewell grabs Dudley Moore. <laughs> wrestles him off. A grown man. No, not very much. Uh, by the ankle and pulls him bodily back into his seat. Jimmy Jewell is an old man (laughs) at this point. And Dudley Moore is, like, in his 40s. And Jimmy Jewell just grabs him like he weighs about three pounds. I mean, that's the best bit in the episode. What a hero! It's Susan's Kate Bush moment. I think this is the thing. Susan goes very Kate Bush, miming long, tall Sally. She's, she's being very... What's it? Balletic. Very, it's almost like she's, do, she's, she's doing lots of stretching and things. And uh, Michael says afterwards he's, got, he's all dry in the throat. So I think the men are finding this quite, <laughs> quite challenging. They're having a lovely time. Yeah. The, the, just the well, drums she, in their pyjamas. <laughs> well, she's wearing, she's wearing a, a, a rather tight black skirt and black tights. And long and, and like knee high boots, and uh, bending over quite uh, suggestively, not like on purpose. No, she's just, just sort of the because she's trying to yes. she's trying to mime the word long. But D- Dudley is overcome uh, by this. Dudley Dudley can't stand it. He's like, okay, guys, <laughs> I'm going in. <laughs> We've all had a lovely time, <laughs> but uh, I've got things to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't think anybody has ever enjoyed a moment. More. Yes. <laughs> I think, unlike Spike and Kenneth getting furious, this is all f- part of the performance. I think. I think Dudley is is 
is performing here. He's he's not. I don't. I, we, I, well, I don't yes, want to uh, suggest that Dudley is actually overcome with lust and genuinely throws himself at his girlfriend. But he's he's, he's entertaining us. He's very much playing it up for laughs. It's very good. The very very first round, um, Una Stubbs, her thing that she had to mind was not only but also. And Susan guesses it in like about two seconds, and then they're all they're all having a little bit of a. A little bit of a chat about it, and she and and she just says above everybody, terrible show, terrible, <laughs> awful. Things don't work out with Dudley. Marry me, it's fine. <laughs> yes, yeah, Susan Anton comes across very well in this, doesn't she? She does. She does. She 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 comes across as a game girl. I kept mistaking Simon Williams for David Icke, though, which is very unfair on Simon Williams. I always transpose in my brain uh, Simon Williams. And Ian Ogilvy. Okay, yeah, I can see that. That's doable. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> They're both posh, and I have the same face. I spent the whole episode thinking that he was school bully, but apparently he isn't. Oh yes, of course, from um, ripping yarns. Una's last one was supercalifragilisticexpialidocious oh, yes. because obviously uh, that's the thing. I don't even think she actually did anything, but. The audience groaned so much and so dramatically. It was a bit of a it was a bit of a giveaway in any case. So Susan guessed it instantly, and Michael offered her a bonus point if she could spell it, and she couldn't. So yes, <laughs> I mean she gave it a damn good go. She got up to pee. Yeah, that's not bad. She nearly spelled the word super. I think that's the showbiz pop culture equivalent of being able to recite pi to a certain number of decimal places is being able to spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I can spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious to ten decimal places. <laughs> anyway, that was it. That's all the episodes. Mm. It's taken us nine and a half days to talk about these three 20-minute shows. I'm going to ask you a couple Ooh, of questions because that's what we do at the end of these things, apparently. I don't, I don't even know. I can't even remember. It's been... We still stick to the format. We doggedly stick to the format points. God damn. That's who we are. It's they may what we be do. redundant, but damn it, we're going to do them anyway. We're going to go for it. Which was your favourite episode? I liked the last one the most. Same. And I think possibly because I'm less invested in the people on it. Spike and Kenneth maybe didn't quite live up to expectations, despite their fury, or maybe just I was. They made me nervous. The two doctors didn't particularly leap off the screen that much. It was nice to see them, but they did, They weren't spectacular. But I think this one had a lot of energy. People seemed to be having fun on that one the most. They really did. They really the did. The middle one, they seemed baffled. And the first one, they, they were drunk and angry. But the, the third one, they actually seemed to be having fun. It's like nobody had told anybody who turned up in episode two no. what the rules mm. were, what was happening, or anything. They didn't even know that they were on. Who was your favourite guest? Dudley, but with special mention to Susan and Debbie, who I think came across well. I would agree with that. Which aspect did you like most or least about the show? I think I liked least the fact that it does seem like other people playing a game rather than a game being played for our benefit. Just by the nature of how charades works that you have to be facing your team rather than facing out toward the viewers or the audience. Yes. So it, it always felt slightly exclusionary. The aspect I like the most is that it's old telly and there's some quite legendary names on there that you get to see. They're not in a scripted show or they're not in a you know a tightly formatted show. They're just they're more just 
being there in the studio, even if it is only playing charades, you get to see Spike Milligan and playing charades. You get to see Dudley Moore playing charades. and You do. And all the people who pronounce it charades are furiously <laughs> shaking their fists at the podcast. It's charades. We're English. Speak for yourself. So, yes, I think it's that. I think it's just the old t- seeing old some old TV. And I think as well, because generally one watches old TV that era and it's stuff like Doctor Who or the you know the scripted dramas or the comedy the scripted comedy shows the sitcoms but it's interesting seeing a quiz show because they're much more ephemeral Mm. and all TV back then was designed to be ephemeral but these are much more ephemeral because it is just some stuff happening for half an hour while you're waiting for dinner to cook and then you go and eat your dinner and it's it's even less than old Doctor Who's it's not designed to stick around at all so the fact that some of it has is fascinating more than scripted shows it's a glimpse onto the past would you watch another episode yeah i probably would you know providing beryl reed wasn't on it i probably would she can't be on all of them she can't So that was it. Uh, thank you very much for allowing me to uh, share this thing with you. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you for bearing with us through our gigantic hiatus, uh, which <laughs> was longer than planned. I know, I know. We do we do this quite a lot. I promise we'll try harder in future. But things have very much been happening. If you would like to get in touch with us, you're more than welcome to. Um, you can get in touch with us uh, at the um, the social media site, formerly known as Twitter. We are at retro, retro underscore tube. I can't talk. It's very late. It's 25 past midnight, folks. At retro underscore tube. Or if you, if you don't particularly want to contact us over that place, because lots of people have left and that's fair, you can always email us. Uh, our email address is retro... What is it? Retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Where? <laughs> Why is my mouth not working? Yes, we are usually quite good at replying to things. There's been a bit of a... It's been a bit of a problem uh, at the beginning part of the year um, with technology and things, but uh, I'm, I'm sorted with that now, so um, we're, we're a bit better these days at getting back to people. And uh, we always love hearing from you. If you've got anything that you want to say to us, that's not too insulting. And if uh, you know, you've got any suggestions of any shows that you'd especially like to see, we'd very much like to hear from you. And... I don't think I should be allowed to talk anymore. So, Adam, have you got the last word? It's also a record. 100 yards in 10 seconds. <laughs> this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, Don't go to Almondby. 
Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazolowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at 10.99. Look for the pink and white cover.